Section 21 of Handbook of Home Rule. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. Handbook of Home Rule. Being Articles on the Irish Question. The Past and Future of the Irish Question by James Bryce, M.P. Part 1. For half a century or more, no question of English domestic politics has excited so much interest outside England as that question of resettling her relations with Ireland, which was fought over in the Parliament and still confronts the Parliament that has lately been elected. Apart from its dramatic interest, apart from its influence on the fortune of parties, and its effect on the imperial position of Great Britain, it involves so many large principles of statesmanship, and raises so many delicate points of constitutional law as to deserve the study of philosophical thinkers no less than of practical politicians in every free country. The circumstances which led to the introduction of the Government of Ireland Bill in April 1886 are familiar to Americans as well as Englishmen. Ever since the crowns and parliaments of Great Britain and Ireland were united in A.D. 1800, there has been in Ireland a party which protested against the Union as fraudulently obtained and inexpedient in itself. For many years this party, led by Daniel O'Connell, maintained an agitation for repeal. After his death, a more extreme section, which sought to complete independence of Ireland, raised the insurrection of 1848, and subsequently, under the guidance of other hands, formed the Fenian Conspiracy, whose projected insurrection was nipped in the bud in 1867, though the conspiracy continued to menace the government and the tranquility of the island. In 1872, the Home Rule Party was formed, demanding not the repeal of the Union, but the creation of an Irish legislature and the agitation conducted in Parliament in a more systematic and persistent way than heretofore, took also a legitimate constitutional form. To this demand, English and Scotch opinion was at first almost unanimously opposed. At the general election of 1880, which, however, turned mainly on the foreign policy of Lord Beaconsfield's government, not more than three or four members were returned by constituencies in Great Britain who professed to consider Home Rule as even an open question. All through the Parliament, which sat from 1880 till 1885, the Nationalist Party, led by Mr. Parnell, and including at first less than half, ultimately about half of the Irish members, 
was in constant and generally bitter opposition to the government of Mr. Gladstone. But during the five years a steady, although silent and often unconscious, process of change was passing in the minds of English and Scotch members, especially liberal members, due to their growing sense of the mistakes which Parliament committed in handling Irish questions and of the hopelessness of the efforts which the executive was making to pacify the country on the old methods. The adoption of the Home Rule policy by one of the great English parties was therefore not so sudden a change as it seemed. The process had been going on for years, though in its earlier stages it was so gradual and so unwelcome as to be faintly felt and reluctantly admitted by the minds that were undergoing it. In the spring of 1886, the question could be no longer evaded or postponed. It was necessary to choose between one of two courses, the refusal of the demand for self-government, coupled with introduction of a severe coercion bill, or the concession of it by the introduction of a Home Rule Bill. There were some few who suggested, as a third course, the granting of a limited measure of local institutions, such as county boards, but most people felt, as did Mr. Gladstone's ministry, that this plan would have had most of the dangers and few of the advantages of either of the two others. How the Government of Ireland Bill was brought into the House of Commons on April 8th, amid circumstances of curiosity and excitement unparalleled since 1832. How, after debates of almost unprecedented length, it was defeated in June by a majority of 30. How the policy it embodied was brought before the country at the general election and failed to win approval. All this is too well known to need recapitulation here. But the causes of the disaster have not been well understood, for it is only now, now when the smoke of the battle has cleared away from the field, that these causes have begun to stand revealed in their true proportions. Besides some circumstances attending the production of the bill, to which I shall refer presently, and which told heavily against it, there were three feelings which worked upon men's minds, disposing them to reject it. The first of these was dislike and fear of the Irish Nationalist members. In the previous House of Commons, the party had been uniformly and bitterly hostile to the Liberal government. Measures intended for the good of Ireland like the Act of 1881, had been ungraciously received, treated as concessions extorted, for which no thanks were due, inadequate concessions, which must be made the starting point for fresh demands. Obstruction had been freely practiced to defeat not only bills restraining the liberty of the subject in Ireland, but many other measures. 
some few members of the Irish party had systematically sought to delay all English and Scotch legislations, and, in fact, to bring the work of Parliament to a dead stop. Much violent language had been used, even where the provocation was slight. The outbreaks of crime which had repeatedly occurred in Ireland had been not indeed defended, but so often passed over in silence by nationalist speakers that English opposition was inclined to hold them practically responsible for the disorders which, so it was thought, they had neither wished nor tried to prevent. I am, of course, expressing no opinion as to the justice of this view, nor as to the excess to be made for the parliamentary tactics of the Irish party, but merely stating how their conduct struck many Englishmen. There could be no doubt as to the hostility which they still less as to that which their fellow countrymen in the United States had expressed towards England, for they had openly wished success to Russia, while war seemed impending with her, and the so-called Mahdi of the Sudan was vociferously cheered at many a nationalist meeting. At the election of 1885, they had done their utmost to defeat liberal candidates in every English and Scotch constituency where there existed a body of Irish voters, and had thrown some twenty seats or more into the hands of the Tories. Now, to many Englishmen, the proposal to create an Irish Parliament seemed nothing more or less than a proposal to hand over to these Irish members the Government of Ireland, with all the opportunities thence arising to oppress the opposite party in Ireland and to worry England herself. It was all very well to urge that the tactics which the nationalists had pursued when their object was to extort home rule would be dropped, because superfluous when home rule had been granted, or to point out that an Irish Parliament would contain different men from those who had been sent to Westminster as Mr. Parnell's nominees. Neither of these arguments could overcome the suspicious antipathy which many Englishmen felt, nor dissolve the association in their minds between the nationalist leaders and the forces of disorder. The Parnellites, thus they reasoned, are bad men. What they seek is therefore likely to be bad, and whether bad in itself or not, they will make a bad use of it. In such reasonings, there was more of sentiment and prejudice than of reason, but sentiment and prejudice are proverbially harder than arguments to expel from minds where they have made a lodgment. The internal condition of Ireland supplied more substantial ground for alarm. As everybody knows, she is not, either in religion or in blood, or in feelings and ideas, a homogeneous country. Three-fourths of the people are Roman Catholics, one-fourth Protestants, and the Protestant fourth 
subdivided into bodies not found of one another, who have little community of sentiment. Besides the Scottish colony in Ulster, many English families have settled here and there through the country. They have been regarded as intruders by the aboriginal Celtic population, and many of them, although hundreds of years may have passed since they came, still look on themselves as rather English than Irish. The last fifty years, whose wonderful changes have in most parts of the world tended to unite and weld into one compact body the inhabitants of each part of the Earth's surface, connecting them by the ties of commerce and of a far easier and swifter intercourse than was formerly possible, have in Ireland worked in the opposite direction. It has become more and more the habit of the richer class in Ireland to go to England for its enjoyment and to feel itself socially rather English than Irish. Thus the chasm between the immigrants and the aborigines has grown deeper. The upper class has not that Irish patriotism which it showed in the days of the National Irish Parliament, 1782 to 1800, and while there is thus less of a common national feeling to draw rich and poor together, the strife of landlords and tenants has continued, irritating the minds of both parties and gathering them into two hostile camps. As everybody knows, the nationalists' agitation has been intimately associated with the land agitation, has in fact found a strong motive force in the desire of the tenants to have their rents reduced and themselves secured against eviction. Now, many people in England assumed that an Irish Parliament would be under the control of the tenants and the humbler class generally, and would therefore be hostile to the landlords. They went farther and made the much bolder assumption that as such a parliament would be chosen by electors, most of whom were Roman Catholics, it would be under the control of the Catholic priesthood and hostile to Protestants. Thus, they supposed that the grant of self-government to Ireland would mean the abandonment of the upper and wealthier class, the landlords and the Protestants, to the tender mercies of their enemies. Such abandonment, it was proclaimed on a thousand platforms, would be disgraceful in itself, dishonouring to England, a betrayal of the very men who had stood by her in the past and were prepared to stand by her in the future, if only she would stand by them. It was, of course, replied by the defenders of the Home Rule Bill that what the so-called English party in Ireland really stood by was their own ascendancy over the Irish masses, an oppressive ascendancy which had caused most of the disorders of the country. As to religion, there were many Protestants besides Mr. Parnell himself among the nationalist leaders. There was no ill feeling except in Ulster, 
between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics in Ireland, there was no reason to expect that either the Catholic hierarchy or the priesthood generally would be supreme in an Irish Parliament, and much reason to expect the contrary. As regards Ulster, where no doubt there were special difficulties due to the bitter antagonism of the Orange men, not of the Protestants generally, and Catholics, Mr. Gladstone had undertaken to consider any special provisions which could be suggested as proper to meet those difficulties. These replies, however, made little impression. They were pronounced, and pronounced all the more confidently, the more ignorant of Ireland the speaker was, to be too hypothetical. To many Englishmen the case seemed to be one of two hostile factions contending in Ireland for the last sixty years, and that the gift of self-government might enable one of them to tyrannize over the other. True, that party was the majority, and according to the principles of democratic government, therefore entitled to prevail. But it is one thing to admit a principle, and another to consent to its application. The minority had the sympathy of the upper classes in England because the minority contained the landlords. It had the sympathy of a part of the middle class because it contained the Protestants. And of those Englishmen who were impartial, as between the Irish factions, there were some who held that England must in any case remain responsible for the internal peace and the just government of Ireland, and could not grant powers whose possessions might tempt the one party to injustice and the other to resist injustice by violence. There was another anticipation, another forecast of evil to follow, which told most of all upon English opinion. This was the notion that home rule was only a stage in the road to complete the separation of the two islands. The argument was conceived as follows. The motive passions of the Irish agitation have all along been hatred towards England and a desire to make Ireland a nation, holding her independent place among the nations of the world. This design was proclaimed by the young Irelanders of 1848 and by Fenian rebels of 1866. It has been avowed in intervals of candor by the present nationalists themselves. The grant of an Irish Parliament will stimulate, rather than appease, this thirst for separate national existence. The nearer complete independence seems, the more will it be desired. Hatred to England will still be an active force, because the amount of control which England retains will irritate Irish pride as well as limit Irish action while all misfortunes which may befall the new Irish government will be blamed not on its own imprudence, but on the English connection. And as the motives for seeking separation will remain, so the prospect of obtaining it will seem better. Agitation will have a better vantage ground 
in an Irish Parliament than it formerly had among the Irish members of a British legislature, and if actual resistance to the Queen's authority should be attempted, it will be attempted under conditions more favourable than the present, because the rebels will have in their hands the machinery of Irish government, large financial resources, and a prima facie title to represent the will of the Irish people. As against a rebellious party in Ireland, England has now two advantages, an advantage of theory, an advantage of fact. The advantage of theory is that she does not admit Ireland to be a distinct nation, but maintains that the United Kingdom, there is but one nation, whereof some inhabit Great Britain and some Ireland. The advantage of fact is that, through her control of the constabulary, the magistrates, the courts of justice, and, in fine, the whole administrative system of Ireland, she can easily quell insurrectionary movements. By creating an Irish parliament and government, she would strip herself of both these advantages. I need hardly say that I do not admit the fairness of this statement of the case because some of the premises are untrue and because it misrepresents the nature of the Irish government which Mr. Gladstone's bill would have created. But I am trying to state the case as it was sedulously and skillfully presented to Englishmen, and it told all the more upon English waverers because the considerations above mentioned seemed, if well founded, to destroy and cut away the chief ground on which Home Rule had been advocated, vis-à-vis -vis that it would relieve England from the constant pressure of Irish discontent and agitation, and bring about a time of tranquillity, permitting good feelings to grow up between the peoples. If Home Rule was, after all, to be nothing more than halfway house to independence, an Irish Parliament only a means of extorting a more complete emancipation from imperial control, was it not much better to keep things as they are and go on enduring evils, the worst of which were known already? Hence the advocates of the bill denied not the weight of the argument, but its applicability. Separation, they urged, is impossible, for it is contrary to the nature of things, which indicates that the two islands must go together. It is not desired by the Irish people, for it would injure them far more than it could possibly injure England, since Ireland finds in England the only market for her produce, the only source whence capital flows to her. A small revolutionary party has no doubt conspired to obtain it. But the only sympathy they received was due to the fact that the legitimate demand of Ireland for a recognition of her national feeling and for the management of her own local affairs was contemptuously ignored by England. The concession of that demand will banish the notion 
even from those minds which now entertain it, whereas it continued refusal may perpetuate that alienation of feeling which is at the bottom of all the mischief, the one force that makes for separation. It is no part of my present purpose to examine these arguments and counter-arguments, but only to show what were the grounds on which the majority of the English voters refused to pronounce in favour of Home Rule Bill. The reader will have observed that the issues raised were not only numerous but full of difficulty. They were issues of fact involving a knowledge both of the past history of Ireland and of her present state. They were also issues of inference, for even supposing the broad facts to be ascertained, these facts were susceptible of different interpretations, and men might, and did, honestly draw opposite conclusions from them. A more obscure and complicated problem, or rather a group of problems, has seldom been presented to a nation for its decision, but the nation did not possess the requisite knowledge. Closely connected as Ireland seemed to be with England, long as Irish question has been a main trouble in English politics, the English and Scottish people know amazingly little about Ireland. Even in the upper class you meet with comparatively few persons who have set foot on Irish soil, and, of course, far fewer who have ever examined the condition of the island and the sources of her discontent. Irish history, which is, no doubt, dismal reading, is a blank page to the English. In January 1886, one found scarce any politicians who had ever heard of the Irish Parliament of 1782, and in that year, 1886, an Englishman anxious to discover the real state of the country did not know where to go for the information. What appeared in the English newspapers, or rather in one English newspaper which keeps a standing own correspondent in Dublin, was, as it still is, a grossly and almost avowedly partisan report in which opinions are skillfully mixed with so-called facts selected consciously or unconsciously to support the writer's view. The nationalist press is, of course, not less strongly partisan on its own side, so that not merely an average Englishman, but even the editor of an English newspaper who desires to ascertain the true state of matters and place it in before his English readers, has had, until within the last few months, when even in Ireland began to be fully reported in Great Britain, no better means at his disposal for understanding Ireland than for understanding Bulgaria. I do not dwell upon this ignorance as an argument for home rule, though, of course, it is often so used. I merely wish to explain the bewilderment in which Englishmen found themselves 
when required to settle by their votes a question of immense difficulty. Many on both sides simply followed their party banners. Tories voted for Lord Salisbury. Through-going admirers of Mr. Gladstone voted for Mr. Gladstone. But there was on the Liberal side a great mass who were utterly perplexed by the position. Contradictory statements of fact, as well as contradictory arguments, were flung at their heads in distracting profusion. They felt themselves unable to determine what was true and who was right, but one thing seemed clear to them. The policy of Home Rule was a new policy. They had been accustomed to censure and oppose it. Only nine months before, the Irish nationalists had emphasized their hostility to the Liberal Party by going their utmost to defeat Liberal candidates in English constituencies. Hence, when it was proclaimed that Home Rule was the true remedy, which the Liberal Party must accept, they were startled and discomposed. End of section twenty one. Recording by Mike Botez.